next. There we go, and it's the wrong title. There we go. I had to get the picture up before I explain this. We're starting a new series uh, this week about the church and the church being the bride of Christ. And as, uh, as I was thinking this over, uh, some of you know that my friend, uh, Pastor Isaac Wilson, he pastors up in Osborne, Kansas. He and I bounce a lot of ideas off of each other. And some of those ideas take us places we probably shouldn't spend a lot of time um, looking around. But we were talking about this idea about you know, the church and how the church relates to God and what God is doing in the body of Christ, and yet how imperfect the church is, and it's a mess at times. And yet, you know, Scripture uses this imagery that the church is the bride of Christ. And, and I told him, as we were sitting there talking, I said, you know, it's kind of like being an ugly bride. And uh, I got to tell you that the idea of an ugly bride is a bit of an anathema. I mean, it should be to all of us. That's, this just does not seem to fit. And so uh, we, um, I t- Stephen or Steve Rue, who, which one of it was you? One of you guys dared me to say this. I'm going to go ahead and say this. Don't do a Google image search for ugly bride. Just don't do it. Okay? So just take your phones and shut them off right now. Don't go, ugly bride, because you'll be, you'll be back there laughing and falling out of your seats. And we don't want that to happen here. But we came up with this picture. You know, you got a pretty good-looking guy up here. And, uh, and this bride, yeah. And uh, I just thought, you know, the church is the bride of Christ. It's also referred to as the body of Christ. But the church is full of humans. Isn't that terrible? Years ago, a friend of mine did a whole seminar that he called, uh, Ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. And, you know, you could apply that to a lot of things in life. Work would be great if it weren't for the people. Traffic would be great if it weren't for the people. You could just apply it everywhere. You know, there's something about our humanity, and we're reminded of it all the time, that we are frail, and we do things that we wish we hadn't done, and we can't undo them very well. And humanity seems to be the weak link here. And yet, there's something about being connected to Christ that alters us, and when we come together, it changes who we are, and our, our, our corporate sense of being the people of God together is somehow beautiful like a bride. And so, I want you to think about this. As we think about this, some of you might be going through your head, and you might have some past life experience where you were a part of a church, or you were around a church, or you knew people or loved people who were part of another church, and things went really badly, and people got hurt. And so they say, you know, I, those kinds of people say, I went to church, I was part of that, I was really involved there, and then, and then things took a turn, and I don't think I'll ever do that again. I was hurt, I don't trust those kinds of people anymore, I know that church leaders do things that they shouldn't do, and so I'm not going to be part of that anymore. I have to tell you, in America, that is a widespread, popular response. You hear it all the time. And people can tell these stories, and some of them are horrific about how they they invested and they were part of a body, and, and they committed and they served and they loved there, and something happened where a fight broke out. 
Maybe it was power struggle between people. There were disagreements that went on or there were decisions that were made that weren't wise decisions or, or a pastor overreached or, or took things into their own hands when they shouldn't have. And as a result, there was all kinds of a mess and lots of collateral damage and people walked away and said, I will not do that again. I am not going to be part of the church again. And let me tell you, I've been around the church enough to see this and even be part of it at times. And there are times when I just shake my head and say, this is not the way the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ should work or look. And so here we are, the bride of Christ, this cherished one of God, and we look pretty dismal at times. But I want you to think about this. Christ chose the church. He chose the gathering of the believers to be the primary vehicle for the gospel in the world after he ascended back into heaven. Now, as I say that, I realize a couple of things. One, um, it leads me to doubt the wisdom of our Lord. Why in the world would God choose people like you and me to carry the gospel? There's all kinds of technology and media and things that he could employ. I mean, God could skyride it across the heavens. He could, you know, he could split open the earth and swallow people up. He's done that before. That seems pretty effective. Why would he go, you know, I want to use people like Hank and Stephen and, you know. Why? There's got to be a better way, but he elected, he chose to go this way, and he chose the church for his purpose, and not just to carry the gospel, but he chose the church for his glory, that this is how the world will see me and respond to me. And I would go even beyond that and suggest to you that if the church is the primary vehicle for God's purpose and glory, when people walk away from it, they're not just walking away from other people. But we know the church is messed up. I, I, I know that some of you keep up and you're really current with a lot of church news and what's happening, you know, not only in our tradition and our little corner of Christianity, but all over. And this last week, if you've been paying attention to what's been happening in evangelical uh, America, you know that it's been a rough week for the church um, uh, Willow Creek Church in South Barrington, Illinois, one of the largest, most influential churches in the country, is just reeling because of the failure of a leader and then those around them and those around them. And it's just a systematic breakdown. And there are a lot of people that are hurting today because of that. There's thousands and thousands of people who have come to faith because they encountered people from that church, one church. And I... I have a hard time finding pastors around me that haven't come under influence of this leader at some point in time and read his books and listened to him speak and and then you realize man he's really human just like us and I'm not the only one who messes up and sometimes the way I mess up looks pretty good compared to the way some other people mess up and so I look around I realize that the church that we see in America today isn't very pretty 
Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, we can drive around Wichita and you will see some architecture and some edifices, some buildings that are gorgeous. And they have been put together in beautiful ways. You walk through the doors and you go, man, this is amazing. They really thought this out and they spent a lot of money. And this looks like a place where you would worship. We would see that and we'd see all kinds of uniqueness to that and beautiful churches around our city and around the country and around the world. But when we encounter the people there, it's a different story. You've had this experience just like I have where you meet somebody and after you meet them you go, wow, that person's got you know, an abrasive demeanor. They're not pleasant to be around. I'm, I'm just as soon not have another conversation with if I can help it. And then you find out later that they're very outspoken about, this is where I go to church and I love Jesus. But get out of my way and leave me alone. And do not ask me for help or money or time. And you just go, wow, that's not pretty. And yet that's the body of Christ. And it doesn't seem to make sense. And, and yet, this is who Christ loves. And it seems crazy. So we think about that. We ask ourselves, so why in the world is the church so messed up? Why are we in such bad shape? And, you know, we've got those really quick, easy answers. Well, pastor, that's easy. Sin. Pride. Power. You know, we could throw one-word answers at it. But I, I would just suggest to you that we sometimes adopt a mentality that says when we come to Christ, we are no longer like the rest of the world. And yet we face the same problems that the rest of the world faces. And in fact, those problems, sometimes they, you know, sometimes God does these miraculous things where he really transforms us in a moment and it's great and it's wonderful and it's freeing. But there are other places in our lives where he just kind of leaves it there and he wants us to walk with that and work through it. Paul experienced this. Apostle Paul said, you know, I had this thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what the thorn was, and I kind of joke that maybe it was actually a thorn, but it wasn't. It wasn't a physical thing in, you know, a thorn in his body, but there was something going on. It was a problem that he faced, and he prayed three times. He asked God to take it away, and God told him no. He said, live with it, Paul. Let's see what this looks like. Wow, that's not fun. That's not the transformative Christ I want to serve. I want to be able to bring people to Christ who are really messed up and he just kind of waves a wand or moves his hand and all of a sudden they're cleaned up and they look great and they talk different and they walk different and it's great. And yet, that's not very often how it happens. See, we face the same problems that the rest of the world faces. We live in the same world that they live in and so we tend to allow those things to have the same kind of influence on us that the rest of the world has. One of the prayers that I've started praying for myself is, Lord, do not let me respond to things that happen around me the way everybody else does. Don't let me respond like everyone else does. Give me a different response so that people don't just keep doing the same thing somehow. And I'm I'm still waiting for him to answer that prayer because... When things happen, I go, yep, I'd do the same thing. 
But you know, in that, when we wonder why the church is so messed up, is because there's not just the people who are just coming in who have just come to faith in Christ, but even those of us who have known Christ for a long time, who have who have devoted our lives to serving and following him, who have moved into positions of leadership and authority in the church, even we struggle. And so i got to tell you, when you look around and you see these people who have incredible ministries, large ministries, understand that every single one of those spiritual leaders is frail and faulty and weak. That's just a part of this life. And so you can throw any name around that you want, and I'm not going to name them, but you know who I'm talking about. You know, the people that have tens of thousands in their following and, and uh, get called by the major news agencies or the presidents of the United States to come to the White House. And I'll tell you, they're just as frail as the rest of us. One case in point for me is um, somebody that I think had a tremendous uh, ministry that probably changed the course of history and uh, loved Jesus with uh, all of her life, and that was Mother Teresa. So if you know Mother Teresa of Calcutta, she, uh, she grew up in Europe, Eastern Europe, and she came from a fairly wealthy family, but she devoted herself to the work of the church. The Roman Catholic Church became a nun, and she left uh, Europe and went to India and lived in Calcutta and moved into the slums and started to work with the people there that were in abject poverty, some of the poorest people in the world who faced really difficult circumstances. And she took a vow of poverty and lived there with them. And of course, through that time in her life, she developed what was, became known as the City of Joy, which was a community, a Christian community. And and it wasn't just for Roman Catholics. There's a lot of Protestants who traveled and worked there with her and came under her influence. And her writings are profound. And she sat down with world leaders, people from all over the world who had no faith at all, invited her to come and speak and have an audience with them. And, and she did. And then when she died in her 90s, they opened up some of her journals and made some of her journals public. And there were people that just despaired because they read in her journals that she was writing day after day during her prayer time and she would write things like, God, I doubt you even exist when I see what's going on around me. Where are you at? And so people said, oh my goodness, if Mother Teresa was losing her faith when she saw the condition of the world, what hope do I have? Well, I, you know, I kind of have the alternative response. I think if Mother Teresa asked those questions, I'm in great company. <laughs> You know, when I look and I see wars and famine and suffering, and I go, God, where are you? I'm standing right next to Mother Teresa. And when I question and I say, God, why would you use somebody like me? I'm standing right next to people like her. And we could go on and on. But you see, leaders fail. We're weak. Our minds are finite. Our strength it's fleeting. And in moments of fatigue and desperation, sometimes leaders make terrible decisions. 
And sometimes it's not just in fatigue or we've worn ourselves out. Sometimes it's just, you know, we're not being thoughtful. We're not being careful. We're just kind of cruising along and we're making decisions, making decisions. We're not thinking about the repercussions and the laws of unintended consequences that come with those things. And there's a mess behind us and we don't even know it. And I would just suggest to you that's been the life of the church since it was born. You remember, some of you remember New Testament uh, history, and so Peter was the one who helped the church come into being, and the day of Pentecost, he was anointed, and he went out into the streets, and he preached, and there's this overwhelming response. Thousands came to Christ in a day, and, and Peter started this ministry around Palestine, and, and uh, pretty soon this other guy comes along, Paul. And Paul had been part of the opposition, and Paul had fought against them, but he had this dramatic conversion, and, and, and Paul listens to God, and he encounters God in incredible ways, and God challenges Paul that Gentiles need to be included in the kingdom without becoming Jews first. And Peter goes, oh, no, 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 we're Jewish. We're a Jewish sect, so you've got to be really good Jews first, and then you can be a believer in Christ. And, and Paul had traveled all over the Mediterranean by this time. And he traveled back to Jerusalem and he confronts Peter face to face. And Paul says this in his writing, I confronted Peter to his face. I love it. And I just go, you know, this is like UFC. Peter and Paul going, come on, bring it. You know, they're fighting in the church, in the early church. Christ was just here a few years ago. And the Holy Spirit's been poured out on you. My goodness, Peter, you encountered it at Pentecost. And, and Paul, you know, on that road to Damascus, and you were blinded, and then you got your sight back. I mean, you guys, of all people, and they're disagreeing, and they're going at it. And Paul wins the argument. And you know what we see is that Peter's leadership in the church just kind of fades. He steps back, and Paul takes the lead. Because sometimes leaders fail. We make decisions we shouldn't have made and we pay the price for those decisions. There are consequences for that. But in the meantime, it seems like the gospel gets what I would call bruised. <laughs> you know, others looking might say, hey, you know, I was thinking about this Christianity thing that Peter and Paul have been preaching about and then I watched these guys together sitting across the table from each other and I was just waiting for the, you know, the fists to fly. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I've been around Pharisees. I know exactly what that looks like had enough of that and so here in america we encounter people we go you know i used to think that i could find jesus in church and i went to church and all they did was ask me for my money all they did was argue about little pieces of doctrine i believe this and they believe that and i just realized that i don't need this to find jesus and so i walked away hoping i would find jesus out there somewhere and some people do but a lot of people don't and in the meantime the gospel gets damaged and hurt but I'm reminded it's not our gospel and so I want to go to a couple of passages of scripture to guide us a little bit this morning Ephesians chapter 5 you know Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus and he's giving them all kinds of advice as to how to conduct themselves with each other and so there's there's advice about slaves and masters there's advice about parents and children and there's advice about husbands and wives and as Paul gets into this, and he's talking about husbands and wives, it's almost as though he kind of slips a gear. 
Because he's talking about husbands and wives, and he flips into talking about Christ and the church, and he goes back and forth, and he refers to Christ and the church as the same kind of philosophy that he does in marriage. So he says, for husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. And so, oh, sorry, uh, then I'm going to jump into this Corinthians passage in a moment. So here you have Paul, and he's talking about husbands and wives and about marriages in the church in Ephesus. And he goes, but you know, this is what it's like with Christ. Christ loved the church, gave himself for the church, and is winning the church to him and presenting her without spot or blemish. Beautiful. Like a husband loves a wife. And then in the church in Corinth, and let me remind you, these churches were messed up. Remember? Church in Corinth, they had people sleeping together. And they were fighting over sacrificed meat and all this stuff and mad at each other. And the, 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 the Lord's table communion looked like chaos. And Paul says this, I hope you will put up with a little bit more of my foolishness. <laughs> Isn't that great for a leader to say that? Please bear with me. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you've received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you have believed. You see, here is Paul, and he's, he's watching the church come apart at the seams, and they're a mess, and they're mad at each other. And Paul says, you know, I, I want to present you. I want to be able to bring this church to God as a beautiful bride clothed in white. And everybody goes, oh my goodness. Look at how beautiful that is. And instead, I'm worried about you because it seems like you're going to get pulled away by another vision of what Jesus is or another gospel and they're going to deceive you, and they're going to take you into other things. And so we see that Paul is already struggling with a gospel of power, a gospel of coercion that says, you know what, you've got to obey things and do things the way I say. And that hasn't gone away. That's still resident in the church today where leaders stand up and go, if you're not with me, you're against me, and I speak for God. And I can just see sometimes God shaking his head and going, don't do this, please don't do this. You see, I'm reminded that Christ loves his followers like nothing else in the world. Oh, he loves the whole world. We're told that God so loved the world, right? But we know that God loves those who come to him, who obey him, who live in him, and who love like him. And I 
I am not of any uh, delusions that somehow, you know, God's love gets altered along the way. It's an everlasting love, and I understand that. But I'm reminded of this image of a young man who has been waiting for the opportunity to marry his bride. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of being in this place with lots of couples, and it's fun, and it's exciting, and sometimes we get to look at a couple that are coming in to get married, and we see them coming in, and we just kind of smile, because it's beautiful, and it's great, and yet we shake our heads going, you guys are clueless. I don't know if you've ever been there. I'm there a lot. And I'm sure that when I was there and Kayleen and I were coming in to get married and we were young and we were deeply in love that there were people go, oh my goodness, this is beautiful, but you guys have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) And we didn't. Most couples don't. But what overwhelms them is this sense of deep affection and care and commitment to each other. And we all look for it, right? On that wedding day, we all look for this. As soon as the doors go open and the music starts to play and that young lady begins to walk into the room, everybody looks back at the guy standing up here. What's his response? Because the last thing we want to see is this guy go, Oh, what have I done? I mean, at that point, everybody would be going, you know, time out, and me as pastor would probably go, we need to step aside and talk. We want to see a guy standing up here going, yes, I'm waiting, come, join me. Commit yourself to me, and I will commit myself to you, and we are going to make something that the world hasn't seen before. That's what's happening. And so... Just for a moment, try to see Christ as that young groom, waiting, anticipating what comes next, and and delighted with the possibilities because the one who is coming to join me, in my eyes, they're gorgeous. She's not here right now. She's going to be coming back from Africa this week. But my daughter, I... I know that some of you pray for her because she's my daughter. And um, um, I give her all kinds of advice all the time, unsolicited and not always wise. But I give her advice all the time about life and, and how to manage things and how to look at guys. And so recently I was talking to her, we were talking about young men and finding a young man. And, and I said to her, I said, you know, I, I've decided what I want for you. If I could arrange your marriage, this is what I would get for you. And she kind of laughed. She goes, oh, dad, if you could arrange my marriage. And, you know, so we went off on a bit of a tangent and got a little foolish there. But I said, you know what? I, if I could arrange for you, I would find a guy who loves you more than I do. And I doubt I could do that. I wish every father would be like that because then every guy who comes along goes, wow, i got to do better. And I felt that way with my wife when I met her and I, I wanted to win her. I wanted her to, 
to be drawn to me. I wanted her attention all the time. I wanted her to care about me more than anyone else in the world. And thank the Lord that's happened. And I look at Christ and his desire for his followers and I realize that he wants us more than anything and he wants us near him. He wants us to be enjoying the communion of that kind of a relationship with him. And he's waiting. And we realize that a groom who stands up here waiting for a bride has paid a price to be here on this. They better have. Otherwise, they don't deserve to be here. They've paid a price, hopefully, of some of their, their dignity and ego. Hopefully, they paid a price relationally, and now I'm, I'm invested in relationship with others, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But, but hopefully, they've also paid a price to win that girl's heart. Given of their time to open a car door or pull back a chair, to pay for the date... To call her late at night and text her first thing in the morning. Girls, if you're not getting that from a guy, come see me. I'm concerned. The guy needs to be so invested that he cannot break his gaze at times. I just can't stop looking at you. You're so beautiful. Because that's the image of Christ. That's how Christ is with us. And he looks at us, he gazes, he stares at us, not because he's looking to see us mess up, not because he's looking to see us disappoint him, but he gazes at us because he loves us with an everlasting love. And he is deeply, deeply drawn to us. So drawn to us that the price he was willing to pay to be related to us was his life. He would suffer every indignity and every physical punishment to have us. And you've all heard the little phrases and sayings about how much Christ died for you and he stretched out his hands and all those kinds of things. But I just want to remind you, God wanted to spend time with you so much he would bleed and die for it. That's investment. I tried to find the cartoon. Some of you have seen it before. I couldn't find it this week. I'd seen it before and I couldn't, couldn't come up with it. But it's the cartoon of the pig and the chicken, you know, and the pig and the chicken are standing in the road and they're looking at the, the diner at the restaurant and they're standing looking at the restaurant and the sign on the restaurant says, breakfast special this week, eggs and bacon. And the pig says to the chicken, I know this requires a commitment from you, but I'm going to have to make a sacrifice. You know, sometimes being invested is really being invested. So here's the chicken going, I'll make a contribution. And the pig's going, but I've got to really invest. You're giving up your eggs, I'm giving up my bacon. And that's Christ who says, you know, I want you to commit to me, but I'm willing to invest and sacrifice in you. So we are loved by God, and that love is a deep and committed love. 
You see, God is deeply committed to not just using his church. I mean, he wants us to change the world. He wants us to bring the lost to him. But God is also deeply committed to this, and this is what scripture tells us, is that he's deeply committed to making us beautiful. Hallelujah. I need a lot of work there. You know, I get up in the morning and I go and I look at the mirror and I see what I see and there's wrinkles where they didn't used to be and gray where it didn't used to be and lack of hair where there was some and things like that. And I just, you know, I look at this stuff and I go, wow, you know, life's not been so kind to me lately. But I'm reminded that, that, that Christ is invested in me and in you to the extent that he wants us to be beautiful. And that has nothing to do with what you see in the mirror. It has everything to do with what you see in the heart. And so I am challenged, and I was challenged this week as I was thinking about this and praying about this. Lord, how in the world are you going to make what's inside me beautiful? When I get upset, and I shouldn't be upset. When I get short with people, and I shouldn't be short with people. When I try to take those shortcuts that I I shouldn't take because they end up being the long way away from you. How in the world are you going to make something beautiful? Because in here is every wound I have ever received. And in here is every misstep I have ever made. You see, God just comes back to us saying, I am deeply committed to using you, and in order for me to use you, I've got to change that. And I've got to make you something that is beautiful. And so God is shaping us and he is altering us. And I've seen it in some of you. And it's great. And maybe it's easier for me to see than it is for you to see yourself. As I've seen how some of you have come and you've made a commitment to Christ and you've made a commitment to this small little body of Christ and I see that the way you talk is different. The way you spend your money is different. Who you spend time with is different. What you're looking for in life is different to what you were pursuing before because God is starting to remap your heart. And he's starting to reshape your soul. And he does that because he is deeply committed to his love for us. So if, you, if you're tempted to make the mistake of believing the lie that says, God is done with me, there's nothing more that can be done, this is hopeless, let's just throw it out, let me tell you, God is not done. Do not believe that. God is at work around you and inside of you. And so I want to remind you in closing that we are God's chosen people. He pursued us. I remember years and years ago, I started college, I was playing soccer, and and I was lacing up my cleats for practice, and I was sitting on the bleachers, and I was running late, and, and, and all these other guys were out. There were a couple of them still with me. We were trying to get out onto the field. And it was the week before college started my freshman year, so I hadn't even been a college student yet. I was just practicing with a soccer team. And there were some young ladies that had come for, uh, for athletics and some other things, and, and, and they were there early as well. And we were sitting there on the bleachers, and these two young ladies came up and sat down on the bleachers not too far from us. And, you know, we were young guys. They got our attention. They were great-looking ladies. And, and we were lacing up, and they, so we were taking a little bit more time 
and not getting onto the field. And, and Coach Jerry Malone, some of you know Jerry Malone, and uh, man had a lot of influence in my life. He was standing there and he walked up to these two young students and, and he introduced himself. He said, hey, I'm Coach Malone and I teach psychology here. And, and they introduced themselves and gave their names and we were taking our time and eavesdropping. And then Jerry, in all of his wisdom, he knows how college students function. And Jerry goes, have you picked one out yet? That's what he said to these two girls. Have you picked one out yet? And one of those girls was bold enough and brave enough to just say, and she pointed at her and she goes, I want him. <laughs> and, and him was the guy on the team. I'm not going to use his whole name because this will go out over the inter- uh, internet and I have friends and family that listen to this. But, but him was Dirk. She said, I want him. And so we kind of chuckled and we... You know, so we ran out onto the field, and one of the other guys who had been lacing up shoes with me walked up to him, and he goes, hey, see the girl over there? Guess what? You should ask her out. And he looked at us like, what? And so we started joking. You know, about two weeks after we graduated from there, they, they got married. But, you know, something with us going over to him and saying, hey, do you see that girl over there? And he turned, and he looked, and, and I'm telling you what. The two were inseparable from there. She said, I want him. And he saw her and said, I want her. And they have had a life together since then. You see, there's this thing when we encounter Christ and we get to see him, we go, man, I want that. I want to be with him. And he sees us and he goes, I have already been pursuing you. I've already paid for you. And I want you more than you want me. And you realize that there's just a part of this bonding that is incredible and it's, it's supernatural and it goes beyond what we understand. And, and I have to admit that this is a part of marriage that I really didn't count on. I mean, I, I had these ideas in my head and I'm, you know, I, I have a personality that's kind of wired this way. But I thought, you know, I've got to find a wife that looks like this because this is the kind of life I want to have and, and this is how I'm going to work my plan. And then... You know, I found a wife that I fell in love with and married and come to find out that there's something that happens in the bond of marriage that's more than just plans. It's more than just making plans. There's something that happens in the bond of marriage that is deeply spiritual. Christ says that the two come together and become one flesh. And it kind of becomes inseparable. And I, you know, I'm at the point in my life where I hope and I pray that that inseparable lasts a long, long time. And it's not just for me and Kayleen, but this is for Christ and the church, that, that there's something that happens when we come together with Christ and we bond as a body of believers and we understand the, the power of his presence and the unity of his love and we come together and, and it's something amazing and it's hard to explain, but we realize that, wow, this is deep and spiritual and lasting and even eternal. And I didn't count on that. Some of you would probably say, you know, when I came through the doors of this church, whenever that was, and I thought I'd come here because a friend invited me or I knew somebody here or whatever the case was, I didn't count on the fact that I would fall in love with the people here and I would find Christ here and this would become my family. You know, one of the things that I didn't count on in my marriage was not only the person I was marrying, Listen up, young people. 
but I didn't anticipate the family I was marrying. Pay attention to that. You don't only marry that person, but you're going to be related to everybody they're related to. And so I encountered this in my life, and and let me tell you, there were times when it was intimidating, and I wondered, what in the world have I signed on for? And there have been other times in my life when it has been life-giving because they love me like they love her. And here's the thing, when you come in here and you're part of the body of Christ here, just this small body, part of the body of Christ, you're going to meet somebody and you're going to go, oh my goodness, what have I signed on for? Do I really want to sit in a seat on Sunday morning by them? And at the same time, you're going to find out that there are people here who deeply, deeply love you. And you're not just marrying Christ, but you're marrying into the marriage, the bride of Christ. And those deep bonds that happen there are lasting. They are eternal. And so really my question over the next couple of weeks is this. So if that's what we're doing, coming together as believers with Christ, then what's it going to look like? How will the body be? How is this going to take place? And how can we be transformed from that bride, that young lady who walks through the door and everybody goes, woo, that doesn't look so good. To the bride that walks through the doors and everybody goes, beautiful, spotless, without blemish or imperfection. So we're going to be talking about that. And I would suggest to you that that begins with us individually. You and I. Band, come on up and we are going to Sing and play together. I invite you to be part of this journey with us as we say, okay, Lord, how are you going to make us your beautiful bride? If our ushers would come forward, we will have our tithes and offerings. And after the plate has passed, if you would like to stand and sing and dance, because it's in the title of the song, we will dance.